here we are at the start of the school holidays, and uh, it's time to mention that some of your children are going to be loud, make noise, and cry. And I want you to know that your child is the only child that has ever done that, right? So it's all on you. You're a failure as a parent. Um, No, the reality is, of course, we've all been there. We absolutely love having children in this church. Uh, What a blessing from God every child is. So when they make noise, we've all been there. Don't stress. Uh, We just love the sound of children because the sound of children means that God is blessing our church. Amen? So we are very, very blessed and happy to have your children here. Uh, What a wonderful thing it is. All right, we are now into our series looking at the gift of of Jesus to different sort of groups of people. So Christmas obviously represents the free gift of grace in Jesus. I mean, the reason Jesus came and was born was so that he would live to grow and offer himself as a sacrifice, as we just talked about, uh, and that we could be saved by grace. And so last week we looked at Christmas for the poor. And so we looked at the idea that Jesus had a special place in his heart for the poor, to minister to the poor, and that we, if we are modeling ourselves after Christ, would have the same heart. Now, I hope I'm not alone today, but I've been a Christian now for 20 plus years, and there's an undeniable truth that I've learned, that I am often a failure as a follower of Jesus. Not all of the time. There are times I get it right, times I'm more generous, more trusting, more loving. Over the years, there's been growth. But then at other times, in Philippians, we're told to shine like a star in a crooked and depraved generation. And I I just want to change the wording to say, can't it be sputter like a candle? Because that's how it feels sometimes. So in short, this morning's message is I want to preach to anyone here today who is not a perfect Christian. I want to talk to the person who's stuck in sin, pornography, anger, greed, whatever it might be, self-centeredness, materialism, whatever it might be, this is a message for you. This morning we are preaching through Christmas for the immoral. Christmas for the immoral. Now if we read our Bible, we can look at Jesus forgiving prostitutes. We can look at Jesus forgiving the woman caught in adultery. Quick aside, the man would have been caught as well, but apparently was let off. I just want you to think about that for one moment though. The man gets let off in some kind of misogyny, but... Who is it who receives grace? The man walks away feeling like he got away with it. The woman is the one who receives forgiveness from God. Right? The one who's brought to Jesus. Where we should always come with our sin. Right? So right there we've got an incredible illustration of feeling like you've got away with something. You're better off coming to Jesus. She is the one who receives forgiveness. We're looking this morning at the prodigal son, the famous story that Jesus told to illustrate some profound truths to us. Now, before I read it, I want to give you the context. As always, if you look at a text, 
Out of its context, you're left with a con, right? That's the old take the text out of context, you're left with a con. Always put things in its context. So what is the context of the prodigal son story? Well, you read in this, the, the whole stories hinge off one question. The three stories we're going to read that Jesus tells, uh, the prodigal son being the third one, hinges off one question. Now, let's read it. This is uh, from, um, uh, I think it was Luke 15, 1 to 2. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with sinful people, even eating with them. Now, listen to that. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus was hanging out with known sinners. Not only hanging out with them, but eating with them. Now, that may not mean a lot in our culture, but Eating with them in this culture, if you invited people in for a meal, invited them into relationship with you. So they're accusing Jesus of having genuine relationship with known sinful people, that he was welcoming them into his relationship. Now this word is used six other times by Luke, and each time what it means is eagerly awaiting or looking out for. So what they're saying of Jesus is he is eagerly awaiting for or looking out for relationships with sinners. This is the accusation that they are bringing against Jesus. What kind of teacher of the law, what kind of of mentor is he if he would eagerly look out for relationships with known sinful people? So in answer to this accusation, in answer to that question about what sort of company does Jesus keep, what sort of people is he happy to be with, he tells us three stories all to answer that question. Firstly, we have the lost sheep. Well-known story, man has a hundred sheep, one sheep goes missing, he leaves the 99 and searches until he finds the lost sheep. And there is great rejoicing in heaven over finding the lost sheep. The second story is the woman with the lost coin. And she seeks until she finds it. And there is a huge celebration in heaven over what is known to be that one lost person found. Now, both of these stories start with a lost item and then found, right? We have a lost sheep is how the story starts and then we find it and there's rejoicing in heaven. We have a lost coin and then we seek, we find it and there is rejoicing in heaven. But not so the final story. It doesn't begin with something lost. It begins with somebody already in the family. It's the story of somebody who already has everything but then walks away. The first story deal with the heart of God for people who don't know him. The last deals with the heart of God for people who do. Let's pick up our story. This is Luke 15, uh, verse 11 through to 32. Luke 15, 11 to 32. He also said, 
a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because the son of mine was dead, is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him, but he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. So he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of God, look, I just can't help here but give you a very quick very quick little story, but a friend of mine was preaching this, well, not this passage, but he referred to this passage once in a sermon. He said, there is more joy in heaven over the one who returns than the 99 who already hears. Heaven is throwing a party right now for those who have returned. God's like, kill the fattened angel. He got it slightly wrong, right? Calf, not angel. Uh, Anyway, if you're an angel overweight, you'd be getting nervous. Anyway, right. So here we have a son He lives with his father. He knows the father. He enjoys all of the blessings of the father, but he decides he would rather do it on his own. In short, he knows his father, but he does not love his father. So he goes up to his father and says, give me all of my inheritance and I'm out of here. This is, in essence, the often played out story of the teenager who grew up in a Christian home. They have learned it all, they've had access to it all, and yet they haven't truly loved. And so they want to go and play in the world, they want to go and play the world's games, and that is in essence our story. Now, saying to your father, I want your inheritance now, in this culture meant basically you are dead to me. 
That's effectively what he said. I want my inheritance now. You are dead to me. You mean more to me dead than alive. I don't know about you, but as a father, if one of my kids said this to me, I would find that pretty crushing. In the story, the father acquiesces. Not sure I would handle it quite so graciously. But anyway, the father agrees to the son's request. And most of you know the story pretty well. The son goes off and he parties hard. He spares himself no pleasure at all. He throws his money around like a politician before an election, right? He's just out there spending cash, wanting everyone to love him and get on board. If, however, as I contend, this story is more aimed at those who know the Father and then fall away, it may not quite look like this for us, but it can be a similar motive, can't it? The Scriptures warn continually, for instance, of the temptation of money, of how it causes evil and draws people away. Money in and of itself is not truly the problem. I don't know too many people who want to sit and just hold money. But it's the love of money, to fall in love with what money can do that can drag people away looking for something other than being with the Father. Money can be a form of security. If we have enough, then nothing can bother me. I have enough saved away now to weather any storm and I feel secure. Well, some of you would have seen on the news a few weeks ago, a man named Sam Bankman-Fried lost his fortune overnight of $15 billion. Gone overnight, one of the tech billionaires. How much money is secure? None. Money can't make you secure. But money can lead us away from the Father chasing a security that doesn't actually exist. Or pleasure, or holidays, or cruises, or TVs, or phones, or food, or or whatever it might be. We can squander our money looking for something which it cannot provide. I've mentioned this before, but I used to love when people would queue up around the blocks for the iPhones. They literally had people in little tents camping there for a few nights so that they could be like the first to get the new iPhone. And like a week later, it was in every shop, right? Like they had to be the first. But of course, the other thing is, once you've had it for a couple of weeks, it's actually meaningless. It no longer provides any kind of pleasure. It no longer provides any kind of buzz. It's just another thing in your kit, right? It doesn't actually provide. Now, Christians, we can do these things. Looking for pleasure, purpose, satisfaction, apart from our Father who made us. We can leave the Father to pursue any of these things. Pornography, materialism, pride are all attributes of the prodigal searching for comfort away from the only place it exists, with our Father. We're all capable of being the prodigal. When your flesh nature rises up and says, I will do it on my own, what is the sin to which you run, I wonder? What promises you happiness but leaves you in sorrow? There is hope for you. There is the good news. So back to our story. 
He runs out of money, having a great time, but then a famine hits the land and he is in real trouble. There are no soup kitchens, there is no Centrelink, and his only employment is feeding pigs. Now, for a Jewish lad to whom pigs are an unclean animal, this is as low as it gets. You are permanently not only destitute, not only with nothing to eat yourself, but you are continually unclean, hanging out with the animal. Now, I know that he was breaking many laws before that, squandering his money on prostitutes, etc. But aren't we good at justifying breaking one command while wanting to observe another? That's the heart of legalism, right? And that is the state of this young man. So he thinks about his father's house. A good man who treats his servants well. They have so much food to eat, there is food left over. And so our story says he comes to his senses. So it is with the allure of sin, right? How many times do we wander far from the fold of God, chasing a temptation of happiness, and for a while it seems fulfilling? But after a while it turns to dust in your mouth. And yet, sometimes we continue. I can think of seasons in my walk with God where I wasn't opening the Word, I wasn't attending church, I was filling my time with one fleshly pleasure or another. And then suddenly the light came on. And I would come to my senses. And I'd be able to think that I had been way happier following God. That I'd had much more joy following God. I felt His presence and it was the richest thing I'd ever known. And then I'd think to myself, why did I ever stop? then sheepishly, ever so tentatively, I begin to walk with him again with thoughts like, can he really forgive me again? Will he welcome me again? Or has the mercy of God run out for me? I've sinned like this before, many times before. Can the love of God stretch this far? Remember, Jesus told this story to answer that question. The son goes through this experience in the story that Jesus has told us to know the heart of God. Does he seek out, does he look for the company of sinners? And this is the answer Jesus gives us. But the plan of the son is to return to the father, but not as an heir, as a servant. In other words, I will not return as a recipient of the gift of life and joint heir with Christ in whom we will share his glory, but I will return as a servant, one who earns his keep, one who through labor will earn my place with the Father. That's the heart of the returning son. I will come back to the Father, but I will do so through works, right? That's the attitude of the son. 
for all of you who have drifted away and you have strayed uh, into sin and you start your tentative walk back to the Father and you want to come back and say to God, right, I'm so sorry I sinned. Now let me earn your favor. Lord, I promise this time around it will be different because I will read my Bible an hour every day and I will pray for two. Of course, what happens? Anyone? You don't read your Bible an hour a day and you don't pray for two. And so you realize that you're a bad servant and so you're like, Lord, I'm going to read my Bible for two hours every day and pray for four. Right? Because I'm going to earn my way back in your house because I've broken your heart and you've received your forgiveness too many times and your mercy has probably ran out and so therefore I'm going to earn my place with my father. You've been there. Oh, I'm going to sign up for ministry at church, particularly one I don't like because that's going to be even more points in my father's house. I'll speak to that person at church I can't stand because, you know, more points in my father's house. Right? We're going to work. We're going to earn. We're going to earn our keep as a servant of the father. I'll tithe more. I'll clean the toilets. I'll do whatever act of penance is required to earn my father's love. The mistake that the son makes in the parable is the mistake that we make all of the time. Because we think that we were anything other than completely wretched to begin with. When God chose you for salvation before the foundation of the world, He chose you knowing the beginning from the end. He chose you knowing every sin you would ever commit and He said, you're mine. Right? That is the gospel. Spurgeon once said, tongue in cheek, I'm glad God chose me before I was born, for he certainly wouldn't have chosen me afterward. Like I said, he said it tongue in cheek. But the reality is he chose you from before the creation of the world and he knew every thought you would ever have and he chose you. So in our text, the son returns to the father and as the story is told, Jesus uses the language that the Pharisees used of him. So is Jesus the type of person who eagerly seeks out the immoral, sinful people? And now Jesus in the story says, the father is out eagerly seeking, looking out for what an evil, sinful person, the son. Okay, it's the same language. Don't mistake, Jesus is answering the question the Pharisees pose. He goes further than that, doesn't he? He says, the father ran to the son. Heads up, the patriarchs didn't run. It was a very undignified thing to do. And in Jesus' story, it's shocking. And we can easily miss that because of our culture. But for a patriarch in his robes to be running down the road full tilt to get to his immoral son was scandalous. Jesus says he's not only eagerly looking for the immoral, he's running to them. Oof. Think of the Pharisees who were throwing this as an accusation at Jesus. 
Look at the strength of his response. Does Jesus really, eagerly, seek out the company of known sinners? Jesus says in response, here's a story of the most sinful rebel you can imagine. A son that would be rejected by all of you. And Jesus says the father eagerly looks for them and runs to them. Man. Jesus says this is the heart of God. This is Jesus' story describing himself about you, his children. It's shocking to the audience. But Jesus runs to the immoral, to the rejected, and he raises them up. So we have this amazing, touching scene as the son admits his sin and and wants to be accepted as a servant to work for his place of belonging. And the father calls him back into the family, puts the signet ring on, signifying he is a full member of the family, signifying a ring of belonging and grace and calls for a celebration. You can't earn your place with the father. The father welcomes him in to the family. You will never overcome sin by law, but you will by love. When the joy of the of fellowship, when the joy of the presence of Christ is greater than earthly things, they will not tempt you beyond what you can bear. If you are caught in sin today, if you are chasing the pleasures of the world, if you feel far from the Father, come back, but not as a servant, not under a cloud of legalism, but an air of grace, righteousness, and of the kingdom of God. Sometimes, though, we feel that part of our problem is, what will other people think of me? What will they do if they knew that I had a problem with porn or anger or gambling or materialism or lying? I'm stuck in my legalism because I can't escape a feeling of shame around my brothers and sisters. And Jesus answered that as well, didn't he? The older brother represents the person who is with the father. They haven't fallen away. They haven't squandered the grace of God. And they're indignant that the prodigal son is welcomed back. And Jesus responds with, You've all that I could give you is yours. You have life and life eternal. You have the joy of the presence of God. Why would you despise a brother or sister coming back into the family? The church is where... We do shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation because the church is a place where the grace of God reigns and forgives sinners and welcomes them into his presence. Not perfect people. People made perfect by the blood of Christ. When I'm weak, another is strong. When I need encouragement, another can encourage. When I need correction, another can correct. The church is where we come together as redeemed sinners on our path to being more like Christ. So Jesus, in answer to their grumbling, gives an answer of the joy of God in seeking and saving the lost and the joy of God in seeking and saving those who have fallen away and to those who have fallen and come back and to those who never have, his word is Rejoice, celebrate, 
welcome the redeemed, welcome the forgiven, welcome the recipients of grace. Church, we need to have a heart for the broken. We need to have a heart for those who have fallen away. And in the grace of God, we need to welcome them back into our family and celebrate their return. Jesus came for the poor. He came for the immoral. And next week, we're going to look at Christmas for the religious. And we'll see what Christ has to say about that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this incredible story that Jesus gave us. Does Jesus truly seek out and eagerly look for the sinners? And Jesus says, I run to them. Lord, we know you've called us to holiness and you've called us to a life of honoring you. But Lord, thank you for the grace that restores and forgiveness when we stumble. Lord, we pray that we would forgive and offer grace to those around us who are struggling. Lord, that together as a church we could move ever more towards Christ. Lord, we pray this in your precious name. Amen.